Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke, and thank you once again for joining me. Today, we are once again going back in time, back into the archives of the old In Transition podcast, way back to 2015, where we talked to Sean Crichton, a commercial lawyer and specialist with expertise in the identification, protection, and commercialization of intellectual property rights. But indeed, what we look at really is why we need to get lawyers involved in our content communication programs and why it's so important to bring them along for the ride from the beginning and not the end. You see, content communication, the goal of it and and the purpose of it is to create those strategic and measurable um, content communication programs that rely on the curation of valuable, relevant, and consistent uh, content distributed through both online and offline channels in order to achieve that desired citizen or stakeholder action. Now, there's quite a bit that goes into that, and there's quite a bit that the lawyers need to understand in terms of the content that you're creating, how you're distributing, where liabilities might lie. And one of the issues that I've found over the years is that often what happens is that content communication programs are built but then they don't go anywhere because the lawyers start to have a look at them and then you know things start to get legal, which is the last thing that you want things to do. So in my conversation with Sean, who is a fantastic guy, former Olympian, by the way, uh, not known by many, but he was a champion Australian distance runner and recently set the uh, Australian record. Uh, it may have, in fact, been the world record for a marathon over the age of 50. Incredible guy, wonderful guy, um, a great athlete, but even clever lawyer. He's out at Moolis Legal, um, currently a partner out there where he does lead their intellectual property and government procurement practice. So anyway, this is a great conversation. I've always enjoyed talking to Sean, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sean Crichton. Let's let's think about it. Let, let's go to, to the idea of a, of a life of a lawyer, because I think a lot of communication people really don't understand the law, nor do they understand lawyers because we're in our world, you're in your world. So what's it like to be a lawyer? Actually, someone actually asked me the other day, do you like being a lawyer? And I said, well, actually, I do. And it was a, I think it was a, they got a shock because most people ask, do you like being a lawyer? The answer is no, I wish I did something else. But uh, I, I enjoy working particularly in creative industries and working with people like yourself, David. So the, the an intellectual property lawyer, one of the things which is uh, what my specialisation is, you get to work with a lot of creative people because there's a lot of creative materials which are developed and a lot of interesting legal issues which arise from it. So that's where I get my kicks being a, um, a lawyer then uh, in working with a lot of interesting people who are a lot uh, smarter and more creative than me. And um, interesting, I did, I did a, a personality test um, a couple of years ago and they said that um, I fitted in the category, which, was, which, which I think is perfect for an, uh, an IP lawyer. I wasn't your normal dot the I's and cross the T's lawyer, which... Uh, which which you still have to do that. Um, I was someone who my personality type fitted in well with working with creative people okay. to help 
take their ideas and their concepts, essentially commercialise them and manage the risks and all those sort of things um, rather than being like a litigator, that sort of sure. thing. So it was actually worked in well with right. it, what I was doing. I thought, oh, that's, that reinforces why I'm doing what I do and why I enjoy what doing what I do. But you have that intellectual property side, which is, is that part of it, but yes. you're also senior legal counsel for a very important uh, Australian federal government agency. Yes, that's right. So the a lot of IP works uh, in the, a, a lot of complex um, IT procurements, for example, which okay. government agencies, including Air Services Australia, have got complex uh, radar systems and, and, and IT infrastructure. A lot of the a lot of IT disputes and a lot of IT issues and the commercial issues around that have an IP focus, and the reason for that is that um, a lot of the uh, a, a lot of IT the leg, the legal value is in, for example, the source code source in the in the computer programs. The source code is protected uh, at law under the copyright laws. So right. copyright okay. is, is one of the backbones of IP. So that's how most IP lawyers also do IT procurement work. So right. They, that's how they work together. But do you have a broader remit than that at Air Services Australia? I do, yes. Yeah. So I do I do general corporate commercial, but I do do a lot of IP, IT focus work, which is what I also do in my with my... So I've got a dual hat. I've got a hat as the Senior Legal Counsel at Air Services Australia and the and the second hat of, of, of running a small boutique IP firm. But in both, both roles we do broad corporate commercial, but with a very strong IP focus. Okay. So let's just focus, if we might, on your work in a federal government agency because it's a it's an important role uh, it's a big job a uh, big job uh, certainly uh, relied upon by the senior executive to be able to give them advice just before we get into that discussion can you describe what a typical day might look like for a lawyer in that sort of environment uh, in the government environment there's a lot of procurement-related activities. Okay. So you're actually looking at the procurement documentation before it goes to market. You're drafting the terms and conditions that attach to the tender. You're, you're looking at the legal responses for a procurement activity, and then you're entering into negotiations with a preferred respondent. But um, and but you're also advising the business more generally in relation to why we need a contract, why, why you can't just um, shake hands with the um, supplier and say, yep, yeah, um, let's get on with it. And, and so... I guess there's an education piece as well, particularly in relation to who owns the IP um, and, and, and why that needs, to, why things in a contract need to be covered, particularly in relation to IP. Who owns it? And that's often a sticking point. And, mm-hmm. and then once you've identified and clarified who owns it, what's the scope of the licence granted to the other party by the one who doesn't own it? So that a, a right to use and for how long and for what purposes and what you'll get paid and, and all those sort of things. And that's important to to document and clarify up front whether it's a government agency or, or, or department or a, uh, or a sole trader or, or an SME. So apart from the leadership looking to you to be competent in your work, what other sorts of advice are they looking for from you around some of the risk issues that are involved? A lot of the risk issues turn on um, if, if, the in, a typical one is a limitation on liability or an indemnity. So an indemnity is where you promise to take on the um, contractually promise to take on the responsibility of any claims made by any third party against you, um, and that needs to be considered in light of what's an insurable risk and what's not an insurable risk. So we'll often work closely with insurers, insurers and insurance advisors to say, okay, well this risk is insurable, so we'll happily take that one on. 
This one's not insurable, so we won't take that one on. And it's, uh, there's often some argy-bargy in relation to do you provide an indemnity at all, uh, what's, what's included within the indemnity, uh, and what do you say, uh, no, we, we're not giving you an indemnity because you've got rights which would otherwise exist at common law, um, depending on the jurisdiction you're in, um, without the benefit of an additional contractual indemnity. So the, the uh, so often the senior management are very interested in um, in what the indemnity liability positions are, as well as what the IP ownership and what you can and can't do with the materials that have been created. Okay, so that really gets us nicely into the discussion that I really want to focus on today. So. I'm in content marketing. I'm working for Air Services Australia. I want to stand up a program of video, audio, stills, text, and graphics. I want to be able to use offline channels such as events and advertising, public relations, produce some collateral. I also want to publish on my channels, my website, my social channels as well. But I also want to distribute some of my content on related third-party channels who also have my audience. So, I want to present this to you. What are the sorts of questions that are going through your mind that I need to make sure I've got answered in my proposal to you? Sure. So the first thing to think about that we'd look at is when the content is created, who is it? Is it created from scratch? And therefore, if it's created from scratch, who owns it? And and clarify in writing who owns it. So a, a, a trap that a lot of people fall into, they think because I pay for the creation of the intellectual property, that I own the intellectual property that's created. It's 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 one of the often misunderstood areas of, of IP law. That's not the case. So if you if 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 company A pays you content group to develop the um, the material, and they think they own it, they actually don't unless there's an agreement in place with and you create the content, mm. an agreement in place with you uh, to transfer, and the legal term is assign the IP over to the person who's who's paying for it. So copyrights, one of copyright and profit and um, sale of a house, for example, are two of the only areas in law that transfer has to be witnessed in writing uh, and and signed by the parties. So the first thing is clarify who owns it. Uh, and, and I have to have something written? Have to have something written, okay, so written and signed. Okay, so I've got to make sure that whoever is creating the content for me yes. um, is either licensing it to me on terms that I agree to or is surrendering the rights to me after I have allowed them to produce it on my behalf That's and right. I've paid them. So there's a few areas. So, so it's, it's, it's looking at who owns the IP which is created, identifying whether there's any third, uh, any IP which is owned by a third party that you need to get a licence for and, and who you approach for that licence. So if you're putting music overlay, for example, in your, um, in your content marketing, you need to get a licence. You can't, of course, just slap that on without getting a licence. So you need to either contact the owner of, the, of that that. Um, that material or approach there are some clearing houses who provide who'll like APRA for example who APRA who'll provide you with a um a, yeah, a license, royalty cleared a, a royalty cleared right yeah. to use certain music mm. um so uh, and, and likewise if you're using some um some graphics or video content you'll again need to either uh, get a, a, an agreement in, in writing from the owner, or, or get a um, a license, a collection agency license for a, a broader scope of being able to use that material. So there's the so there's the two the material which is created mm-hmm. um, from scratch becomes it's not even as straightforward um, yeah. as otherwise. So if the general principle of copyright law is if if you're 
let's say it's you content group. Mm-hmm. If you have an employee yep. who creates the material mm-hmm. pursuant to their employment, that you automatically own all copyright, which they in all any other IP which they create, unless there's an agreement to the contrary in writing. If, however, you engage a third-party contractor to develop some material for you, and and we're finding in a lot of creative industries these days, you might someone might engage a subcontractor in India or Russia or wherever to create certain parts of the, let's say, websites for example, or development of of um, some some software. Mm-hmm. Unless you've got a, an agreement in place with a contractor, they own it. So right. th- you can potentially have a risk if, let's say, if we use a, you as an example again, you enter in a, into an agreement with a government agency and the, go- the agreement with the government agency says anything that you create for us is going to be owned by us and you'll, you'll assign, you'll transfer ownership of all that IP to us. If you've then got a new promise that you'll do that, and you indemnify for any claims if you don't, the, the risk might arise if you haven't connected the dots and, uh, and, and shored up the ownership. You can't, you can't transfer what you don't own. So you, might be, you can clearly transfer the IP which your employee is, has created, but if you've got a, a, someone in, a contractor who's developed part of that and you haven't got a written agreement, you can't actually transfer ownership of it because... You don't own it. You don't own it, yep. and then you've got then to muddy the waters even further. You may, as lawyers like to do, as lawyers like to do, <laughs> you may then have a claim that if 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 the if the material if the copyright materials would were developed um, collaboratively between multiple parties. <laughs> oh God! You've then got, and they weren't all your employees. <laughs> if it was partly owned, developed by the client, partly owned, uh, developed by an employee, partly owned by a contractor. It's a nightmare because you've then got jointly owned IP. <laughs> yeah, but th- how do you resolve those issues? Like, how uh, do you so, mark- so, you, so you resolve those by identifying them up front. So before okay. you, before you so start here we working go. We're going together, back to the point of really you've got to be thorough and prepared. This is back to Kim's very astute point, get the lawyers engaged early. Yeah. So before you start working on a project, you would sit down and you'd say, okay, well, um, this is what we're doing for this is the outcome where materials we're developing this is how we're producing it and this is how we're delivering sorry, it so just to stop you there are the lawyers actually interested in the strategic side of things as well are generally they interested? because it can provide the context of so you can help, the lawyers can sometimes then provide help provide guidance in relation to how you structure the arrangements before you get started so ah okay so well, that's the, a good point so the lawyers let, let's say you're acting for the government yeah um, and the you may have a one of your senior execs says, well, we need to own this IP. Right. And you've got resistance from, let's say, content groups the other side. And David Pembroke says, no, well, you can't own that because this, is, this has got a, uh, a large part of our template material which we need to modify and adapt and reuse for, for other clients and to recreate that would, would take a lot of time. Yeah. So, so you can actually say to the government lawyer, might say, well, do you actually ask the question, yeah. Strategically, do you really need to own this IP or do you really want to just have a sufficiently broad right to do whatever you want with it, whenever you want and however you want? So therefore, but you, you can do all that without owning it. Mm. So, so th- But you do need to shape up that context though. That's what you're saying, isn't exactly. it? To really go into the, uh, with those discussions to say, you know, here is the policy imperative or here's the program imperative or this is what That's exactly right. we're trying to achieve. This is what we want to do with it. Yeah. So and here's the hierarchy. Exactly. And then 
cascaded from there. Exactly. So from the hierarchy in relation to, let's, let's say it's IP, you'd say, first question is, who needs to own it? Yep. And from there, a lot of decisions will flow. And then once, we, once you've identified who needs to own it, you can then say, okay, um, well, if it's, let's say it's content group on one side of the transaction and, and a government agency on the other, if, if the government agency needs to own it, you can then as content group say, well, okay, that's fine. You can, you can own this specific part which we're creating specifically for you and let's call that um, foreground IP or, or specifically created IP. Yep. You can own that specifically created IP. However, you don't own our background IP. Right, but we will give you a license to use our background IP to the extent you need to utilize it to use your creatively, specifically created IP. So you can actually then distinguish between different parts of IP in the same content, and so each party there is a way which you can get a win-win in those sort of scenarios. So, um, but that that again comes down to figuring out strategically what you want to do, why you want to do it, and, and, and how you want to do it. And what other things do you need to so, talk to the lawyers about? What else do they want to know about? Uh, the lawyers will want to know, um, for example, are there going to be, let's say it's in, 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 we're talking about content marketing. Yep. Who is going to be making what sort of statements and promises online uh, in, the, in the podcast or in the, in the materials which recipients might reasonably rely on? So Okay. Uh, and rely on possibly to yeah, their to detriment. Make decisions. To, yeah, to, sure. to, to, to make decisions. And what happens if the person who's providing the materials or making the statements makes statements which are misleading or deceptive or, or, or not accurate? Who's going to carry the can for that if a claim is made? So they're some of the, um, the issues which you would need to identify. So we, we for example... Act in in the in the non-government capacity. Act, act act for a client who regularly has presenters on their television show, and as part of that process, they will um, ask uh, for an indemnity from the um, presenter for the making of any claims. If they make misleading or deceptive statements or, or claims or which 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 they know are which know, they know are false, uh, and if claims are made against our client they would then go back to the presenter who made those statements and say, actually, this one's on your head. But if it, what if it's in just in low-risk areas where there's not likely to be any sort of conflict? Do you still – are the lawyers still saying, that? well, I, whether there's low risk or no risk, I do want to see a process that really identifies the risk and a way to mitigate that risk? No, not really. So it, it, oh. it, it really comes down to uh, – Lawyers get particularly involved if it's, if you do a, a risk matrix, which we which we'll sometimes do, and you look at the, the the likely consequences of the risk, and the likely occurrence of the risk. And if it's very high risk and it's very high occurrence, or a very high chance it'll it'll occur, we'll of course want to get involved and and we'll really want to go a belts and braces approach and and put a whole slew of protections in. Right. If, however, it's low risk and it's low risk of occurring. We'll probably just say, listen, just be aware of this and, and maybe just ensure you manage that risk, but we don't need the belts and braces approach. But often often there's that sweet spot, sweet spot between the two of it's, 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 it's unlikely to happen, but if it does happen, it's a, the consequences are high. Or conversely, it, um, it, it, it might happen quite often, 
uh, and it's, but it's not a, a very high risk, but it's still a risk. And then, then you'd want to cover off the, ideally cover off the risk, but, but you don't have to go to town on it. Now, social media, uh, important channel for yes. content marketers, but given uh, the popularity of it, the, the growing connectivity, the fact that everyone now owns smartphones and everyone who we need as a government to communicate with are connected, they're on the grid, and they are using these many, many, many different um, channels and platforms to uh, gather information. What sort of guarantees or what sort of information do I need to put in front of you, again, to enable me to be able to use these channels effectively? Uh, I- Again, it's uh, the same principles apply. You've got the. You've also got to, If you're going to be posting something on YouTube, for example, you've got two potential risks. You've got to have a look at what the or pick pick any social media channel. Yep. They will all have their own terms and conditions, which are all different. So some of them might say anything that we that you post online. This is less likely, but just to double check. Anything you post on our platform, we'll own the IP to. Mm. So you don't want that. Uh, more often than not, though, they'll say, you indemnify us from any claims by any third party that what you post online infringes any third party IP rights. So if, if you post something online that, which has someone's music on there and you haven't got permission for that and the music owner makes a claim against you, that platform will, doesn't want to be liable for that. So that brings us right the way back to making sure that any content you create irrespective of what your distribution channel is, whether it's on an online platform or, or otherwise, you want to make sure that, that you've got the relevant IP ownership covered off and the consents in place. Okay. So quite manageable, really, yeah. you, you believe, but again, needs to be addressed, needs to be formally part of a process and needs to be thought through and discussed. Exactly. And check the terms and conditions of the platform that you're, that you're posting on. Okay. Another area, an increasingly importance in my view, uh, in terms of the distribution of content, is the use of third-party channels. So these are not our channels. These yeah. are channels where people have the audience that we're seeking to reach. Say, for example, we're in an agricultural industry. The National Farmers Federation has access to a very large audience. We have a piece of content that we would like to share through their channels in order that we access that audience rather than having to rely on that audience coming to our channel. What are some of the issues around the distribution of content through third-party channels? So... if you're, di- if you're distributing to, to someone, so you're distrib- distributing to someone who, and then allowing them to pass it on to the third-party channel, is that how you... Uh, no, going to the third party and yeah. then they, they distribute it to their audience. Yeah, so you, you, ideally you'd want to have an agreement in place with okay. that third party which, which grants them the rights to use your content. Right. Uh, and it, it might want to be, for example, do you want to clarify the, the term in which they're allowed to use it? So is it can they use it forever or is it for one episode only or is it for 12 months? Um, is, have they got a geographical restriction on, on, mm-hmm. on, on how they use it? Um, and you'd, they might, then you might have some argy-bargy. The third-party distributor might want to ask you for an indemnity if they get a, a claim that the, the content they distribute, which, which you've provided them, has any claims, and that's probably a reasonable uh, request, so, but you'd still want to look at that. Um, but you'd also then want to ask for an indemnity from the third-party distributor if they then use your content for purposes beyond the scope of the licence which you've granted to them. 
Okay. So really what you're saying is that all of these risks are, are manageable. All of these permissions are achievable. It's really just about logically working with your legal team to think through what are the steps to put the framework and the architecture for the content marketing program together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think probably the biggest risk and biggest risk issue we've seen, less so in the government context, more in the um, small to medium business enterprise, is the use of someone who's developing the IP, in this instance, part of the content, but not all of it, um, using subcontractors and not being fully aware of the risk of not having an agreement Mm. in place with the subcontractor. Yeah, that's that's a good point. For a discrete part. So, So we have... We've seen a few issues in in the past couple of years where um, a party has had to transfer ownership contractually, transfer ownership of some of the IP to a third party, but they haven't actually been able to because the contractor developed part of it, and the contractors dug their heels in and said, "Oh no, well you you paid me to develop it, not you didn't pay mm. for a right to own it." And the contractor then who developed that part has then got you over a barrel and can can basically ask for whatever they want to get, allow you to shore up the the full title to be able to transfer it because the risk if you that aren't able to then transfer it you're in breach of your obligation to transfer the the IP so you're you're really caught in a in a difficult bind in that sort of situation but yeah so the the simple way around that is before you get a contractor to develop anything for you, make sure you... And it has to be a simple... It can be a one-pager, a simple agreement in place whereby the contractor agrees that they will assign anything they create over to you on what's, creation. But on a more more uh, a broader point, really, what's your view on the fact that there is so much content and information being produced? You know, there are terabytes of information being produced and distributed and how does the legal system possibly keep up with it all? Yeah, it's a fascinating point because what we're finding now is by virtue of just that very reason, in the old days if you wanted to copy something, you might have had to get a book out of the library, go down to the photocopier and um, and buy your photocopier card and, and take a couple of copies and then you, you've copied it and um, and no one's ever really going to find out if the um, if you've got a taken a photocopy of a few pages of a book. The owner of the book's less un, highly unlikely to, to, yeah. to, to reach into your briefcase and find it. <laughs> Whereas these days, it is very easy with a couple of clicks of a mouse to copy some content and repost it without authorization. People do it without thinking about it. We're now finding the IINet case, which has recently come down, has, is is a fascinating one, whereby the the judge has actually said that the yeah, just give us we've got a oh, quite sorry. a big uh, oh, sorry, international yeah. audience. So, let's, so, let's... so there's a recent case in Australia where um, the owners of um, some I think they might have been the movie houses took action against Australian internet service provider for allowing or authorizing the. Um, the making of using their, that internet service to to make unauthorised copies of um, of materials, and the the movie houses sued IINet for for allowing that infringement to take place when they rather than taking down those 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 sites when um, when people were advised of it. Um, so the judge in the first instance found that IINet wasn't wasn't um, guilty of. Um, uh, infringement for allowing those or or enabling those infringements. But very recently, the judge has actually given an order to IINet to say, you actually have to deliver up 
the name and address of every one of your customers so that these people can go directly against the people who are actually doing the infringing activity wow. to issue claims directly against them. Now, that that process has been used a lot in the courts in the USA and, the, and it has been used to or almost abused by the the content owners, because the judges have been in those jurisdictions, have been concerned about the just how hard some of the, the the owners of the content have gone in against the little guys. So the compromise which was made in this in the recent Australian case was, yes, you the content owners can request, you can this information from IINet, and you can send demands directly to the IINet customers. However. The letters of demand that you send have to come through the court and be the wording has to be approved by us first before you send it to make it so it's not real heavy bully boy right. tactics. So but can they identify the people who are doing the sort of downloading at an industrial level? Uh, well, they probably could, but this is where it gets fascinating is, is if someone was an individual and said, okay, we're suing, we, they get the letter from the content owner and say, we're suing you because you... Um, your ISP has identified your IP internet yeah. protocol addresses coming from, from, from this house and you're on the hook for copying, yeah. presumably some defendants will say, well, actually, how do you prove it was me? My, 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 um, my home Wi-Fi was unsecure and there's a 50-metre there's a radius around here. It might have been my neighbour or actually I had, um, I had bloody Pemby staying with me for that weekend. That, that bugger's prone for copying stuff. So I, I, it was him. <laughs> So you still got it. You still got a lot of evidentiary issues yeah. to overcome. have. They tried it yet? Have they no, tried it's a, this, this, okay. This, so there's this, no prosecution being this, launched this, yet. This is all. This is all in the last month. Yeah, right. So it's all. It's all happening. Watch this space. But it's a. It's a. It's a fascinating area. So you. But you, but I think I think the message from that is that some of the bigger content producers are now getting a lot more creative and a lot more stringent. Yeah. In in monitoring. Uh, unauthorised use of their content and not only monitoring but enforcing their rights. Okay, so just in summary then, really what you're saying is is take Kim or Rick's advice. Exactly. Really, you know, <laughs> go, go to the lawyers and sit with them, present your plan in all its context, in all its glory, in all its detail and then work with the lawyer through each of the steps as you're talking about. That's really, right. To, and to, to then know and understand the permissions that you need to secure at every step of the way. So then when your plan is then going through for approval, it has a sort of legal architecture framework which has been signed off already by the legal team. So as it goes through the executive committees, they say, okay, right, well, this is well prepared, fit for purpose, ready to go, off you go and content marketing, knock yourself out. Absolutely. That's a perfect summary. So I think a, a roadmap which is agreed by the senior execs, the content producers and, and, and approved by the lawyers is, is the absolute way to go to develop and create and distribute your content with a very low legal risk. But the lawyers must love being involved in these productive sort of discussions. Absolutely. Well, there, there are different lawyers. There's often – you've got lawyers who love chasing ambulances. I'm not one of them. There are, 
there are lawyers who love criminal cases. I'm not one of them, but uh, I just happen to be a lawyer who I, I love sitting down in these sorts of discussions and, and working through the, with creative people and, and um, creative content and, um, and working through these very sorts of issues. So, because, yes. because as you step through this discussion here, I just sit here and I've been, you know, I've been around for a while and I've, you know, and you are our lawyer and I do send things through to you, but I, I'm probably not as stringent as I need to be and the processes and the structures that need to be there. And really, as content marketers, we have no excuse. There is no excuse not to be prepared. There is no excuse not to be able to argue your case to get the budget and the funding and to be able to engage the resources within the organisation that are there to help you. That's right. So there's no excuse anyone out there to really not really put your best foot forward and get prepared, get ready, get in front of it so that you can get to market because the other thing these in this day and age is speed. That's right. We need to be quick. Yeah. We all need to get faster. So, and I think I think in a worst case scenario, let's just let's just paint a worst case scenario for um, if there's an IP infringement claim. So you've you've gone to um, you've developed some material and you've 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 actually quickly gone to market. It's out yep. there, and things are going great. You're getting a lot of hits and you're getting some great responses. All of a sudden, someone makes a claim against you and says, "Hang on a second, yep. I own that IP." So what what might happen? Well, what might happen is the owner of that IP might run off to court and get an in, what's called an interlocutory injunction against you and, and request an order from the court that you immediately need to take down that content until such time as the dispute is resolved. Um, so you may find a few things. So you, the content which you've developed for your client or for yourself is immediately taken down, which would be highly embarrassing and highly inconvenient and, and a cost. You may then, uh, if the matter then goes to full trial, be up for So you, the, the remedies for... A breach of infringement of IP injunction to stop it being used mm. until such time as the court case, because the court case will run for twelve months. So, court injunction to stop you using it until the court case runs its course. Uh, and then, if you're unsuccessful at court, the person who brings a claim against you would have two options: they can go for damages against you, and then um, there uh, you can ask if it's a, it's a, if it's a a blatant, uh, sorry, a blatant infringement. Um, you can ask for exemplary damages, so a lot more f- um, for, for the for, for the flagrancy. Uh, or alternatively, you can ask for an account of profits. So you can say, okay, well, you made two hundred grand for this, and you used half of ours. So give us a hundred grand. Yeah. Or not give us hundred grand. Ask the judge to to make an order for a hundred thousand. But okay. but the biggest risk is probably by the speed purpose is the risk of it being taken down. Yeah. Because you, re- but but again, I think the processes are really well identified by you. There, the risks are well identified, and really, we you know, there's no excuse not to really That's be, right. be prepared, have an approach exactly. So and, if and, and and if you can move quickly, well, yeah. you need to move quickly, but build the relationships as well exactly with the lawyers. So is it you know to go and so buy them a coffee, take them for a lunch, or you right. know, get to know them a little bit better. So is it you know there is that trust and confidence and relationships. So That's right. when you say, hey, we've got to move today because that tactical opportunity is upon us yes. and we're going to get some, we really need to move fast. So you've got to have those relationships in place. Exactly, okay. exactly. But so yes, all the doom and gloom, it's, it's, uh, it's all risk, relatively risk-free if you get if you get all your processes in play and your agreements in place up front. Sean Crichton, I hope everyone out there got a lot out of that this week. I think there's 
you know, it's it's clear. We, there is no excuse for us not to be ready with our programs. There's no excuse for us not to go and build those relationships before we need them. There's no excuse not to go and understand what the processes are, to get the templates in place, and to be able to understand what those relationships are with our subcontractors, contractors, other people, and the relationships that they may then have beyond and expecting that we get some really good quality out of the people who are providing content uh, to us on behalf of our client. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.